0: Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story, personally, in our neighborhoods and communities, and in our families. My friend, would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So. Um, The video kind of lays out for you that Ephesians is this letter. It's in two parts. You've got the first three chapters where Paul is laying out for the Ephesians just this overview of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the second half of the letter, the, the last three chapters are him taking that gospel and saying, look, this is how it applies to your daily life. And so that means that even though Ephesians is one of the shorter letters, it's not as long or as detailed as Romans or Corinthians it gives you an overview of the entire message of the New Testament and, and how it applies practically to your life that no other letter really does, uh, which makes it really useful. It's this wonderful, easy-to-follow overview of here's the message, here's what you do with it. So we're going to just follow the structure. We'll start in, in the first half at what Paul is laying out as his gospel message, and then we'll go into the second half about what he says this means for our day-to-day, day-to-day living. We're starting in Ephesians 1 verse three. and just buckle up because it's a lot I'm reading a lot to you, so just you know it's okay, it's the Bible, you can handle it, but it's a lot. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we inqu- acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory? <sighs> All right, that's a lot. So you have this opening prayer of the letter, and like the letter, it, it it separates out into two halves. And so the first half of this prayer, verses three through ten, is is the Christian version of the Exodus story. So Paul's a good Jewish boy, and because he's a good Jewish boy, the Exodus narrative out of the Old Testament is for him the foundational story in Scripture. For ancient Jews in particular, the the story of the Exodus is the story that defines who they are. We are the people who God brought out of Egypt to freedom. What Paul is doing now is he's taking that and applying it in a new direction. So with the Exodus story, you have God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whom God chose to be his people, not for any of their own merit, but as a free gift of grace. And they're set free. But they're set free for a purpose. They're brought out of Egypt to their inheritance, the promised land. And they have a purpose there. In the promised land, if they follow the law that God gives them, they will be the people through whom God will work to undo the damage that sin has done in the world. They are the people through whom the Messiah will come. They are the people through whom God will redeem the broken, fallen creation. They have a purpose. And now, Christ has done the same thing for us on the cross. He's chosen us, and and this language of of being chosen, it's not meant to actually imply that he rejected others, okay? It's meant to, to highlight that our inclusion, our justification is a free gift that we do not merit, but it's also meant to draw your attention to the fact that we have a purpose. We are called and chosen so that we can fulfill God's saving purposes in the world. Not just for humanity, but for the whole cosmos. So that's the beginning. This is how he adapts the Exodus narrative to apply to Christianity. To apply to the people who acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. The same God who did this for the Jews back then is now doing this for Jews and Gentiles now. And then you get to the second half of the prayer in verses 11 through 14. And this moves from this sort of Christian version of the Exodus story to a Christian version of the Promised Land. The inheritance for the Jewish people was the land of Israel. The the inheritance for us now that Paul is speaking of is the whole world, renewed and restored by a fresh outpouring of God's presence when Christ returns at last. It all points forward to the final scene of the Bible where you have the new Jerusalem descending from heaven to earth and the two halves of God's creation are united at last. But in the meantime, while we wait for that to happen, we are given the Holy Spirit so that we still live in the glory and presence of God even as we wait for him to finish his work on the final day. It's, it's a little bit of the future brought forward into the present. We enjoy the presence and glory of God even as we wait for him to finish the job that he has already begun. Which takes us ahead into verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. For Paul, the greatest display of power that the world has ever seen was the moment that God raised Jesus from the dead. In that moment, it's clear that God is more powerful than any of the rulers of this world and than any of the idols who are being worshipped by the pagans. And the thing is, he even has above every name that is named, including the name of Caesar, who, like Jesus, claims the title Son of God. In fact, if you go pick up a Roman coin from the right time period, you'll see that it says, Augustus Caesar Divi Filius, Augustus Caesar, the Son of God. Caesar, who also called himself the Prince of Peace. Caesar, who, by the way, had his own gospel, the good news of Caesar. I'm not making it up. They preached it. They taught it. Caesar's the one who brings you peace. Caesar's the one who brings you stability. Caesar's the one who saves you. That message was spreading all throughout the Roman Empire. An entire religion springs up devoted to worshiping the Roman Emperor. And everywhere that Paul plants a church, the people of God are saying, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And to back it up, they point to the resurrection. There is no power we could ever see which rivals the power of God. And because of that power, the risen Jesus is enthroned as the ruler of the cosmos. For the early Christians, that was not metaphorical language. They went into Roman cities where there were temples built to Caesar where the people said, this man is the king of the world, and they said, no, he isn't. And they died for it on occasion. And that power that raised him from the dead, that enthroned him with God, is available to his church for our use. We have access to the king and to his power, but often we fail to see it, and we fail to use it. We didn't read it, but in verses 17 and 18, Paul prays to God to give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom, a revelation of the heart, so that they can see his power at work and make use of it. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that will one day transform the whole world and stomp out evil for good, is available to us. Now this does not mean that we all become wonder workers or that we can just call on God like a cosmic magician to come and perform all sorts of tricks. There is no such thing as miracle on demand. That's not what we're saying. I'm glad someone laughed. That was a joke, you know, that was, (laughs) whoever laughed first, you're my favorite. Um, In point of fact, many if not most of the things that God's power achieves are are hidden from the world and sometimes they're even hidden from other Christians because they're things like putting to death a hidden sin, transforming our hearts to enable us to love unconditionally as God loves, speaking to us in our hearts, shaping us into people of prayer, delivering us from the power of sin and temptation. God's power is available to us to destroy the sin in our lives. It's available to us to transform us, to transform our church, to transform our community. We are the hands and feet of King Jesus. We are his agents in the present world and it's high time that the church believed it and acted like it. That power is available to us. Too often, we just assume that that we're powerless in the face of some of our sins and we go, well, thank God I'm forgiven anyway, right? But Paul is insistent that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can take your sin, crucify it with him, and raise you to new life. And all throughout the history of the Methodist church, this has been a core part of our belief and our message, that that the power of God is available to us to stomp out the sin in our lives, to eradicate it, because the power of sin is broken. You don't have to do it anymore. You don't have to accept failure anymore. doesn't mean that you become perfect overnight. doesn't mean that we all suddenly transform into little angels who never do anything wrong or who have no human failings. But it means we don't have to settle. We don't have to settle for being broken. We don't have to settle for being sinful. We have the power of God within us. And that brings us ahead into chapter 2 in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in this little passage, Paul has come to the point of everything he's said thus far. God is building a new temple, and it's made of human bodies. And that's not as creepy as it sounds. We are now the place where God chooses to dwell. Christians form the community in which God dwells on earth. So this is the gospel message that Paul lays out. The creator God has freed us from slavery to sin. He's called us to serve his saving purposes in the world. And as his royal agents, we have access to his divine power to carry out his purposes, beginning with our own hearts, which have to be cleansed from our own sins. And as we carry out his purposes, we become the temple in which God is pleased to dwell. We replace the temple that was in Jerusalem. We become collectively the place where the presence and the glory of God can be seen and felt and experienced because God dwells within us. Now, how do we do it? And So the second half of the letter explains exactly what Christians are supposed to do. So starting in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord of the calling. Live up to your calling. Right? Jesus has set you free but for a purpose. Where is Jesus leading you? What is Jesus asking of you? What is he equipping you for? All too often we will hear questions like that and we think of them only in individual terms. Right? My calling, my gifts, God's plan for my life. And it's true that God calls us on an individual level and equips us on an individual level. And, and has paths and purposes for us as individuals, but he also calls us corporately. We can't afford to think only of my calling. We have to think about our calling. Where is he leading us? Where is he leading Asbury? What is he asking Asbury to do? What is he equipping Asbury for? These are the questions we have to be asking, and these are the questions we have to be praying our way through. Why is this church here, on this corner, in this city, at this time? How will we live up to our calling? None of the churches that Paul planted were planted randomly or without purpose. He went and sought out, not just major economic centers or or cities that were on big trade routes, he sought out the cities that had the biggest temples to Caesar, the cities where the the cult of the Roman emperor was the strongest, where the devotion to Roman culture was the strongest, and planted communities in there who would say to those people, that man is not the king. He gave each church a purpose. He put them on the front lines of the battle he intended to fight. Every church was planted with a purpose. Guided by the Holy Spirit. That has never changed. Churches don't spring up randomly. God does not work randomly. There are no coincidences in terms of where a church might be. If this church exists and it's here, there's a reason for it. We, we tend to get bogged down in searching for our own individual calling, our own purpose, our own gifting. And, and it's not that you shouldn't focus on those things, because you should. You should know what God is calling you to do but often we get so absorbed in looking at that that we forget to lift our eyes up and see the bigger picture of, of what the body of Christ is meant to be doing in this place. Because we are not alone. Christianity is not a solitary religion. We are the body of Christ, and it has a purpose. How will we live up to our calling, not just as individuals, but as a church? If we skip ahead into chapter 4, verse 25, he'll lay it out for us. Paul's helpful that way. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the simplest way to do this, the, the easiest way to live out your calling, to live out our calling, is to live as if the gospel is true. To imitate God. Now, all of us who have young children have been on the receiving end of this, right? Uh, Like, my daughter imitates me in all sorts of ways. Um, So every night when I put her to bed, I read her a couple of books, and then usually we'll sing to her like a little hymn or something. And some nights, you know, she's so tired she is asleep before we start that. But most of the time, she starts to try and sing along with you, right? She imitates you. Now, she's, you know, copying me, so she has to be like half a beat behind, and she's way off key, and so, you know, sometimes it's like to be quiet. But my wife and I will both notice that she does the things that we do. She she imitates our mannerisms. She talks to the dog the same way that we do. Um, When when she gets angry, she behaves just like my wife does when she's angry. So pray for me. Um, I can't say that because neither one of them is here. Um, But they respond the same way. It's down to the exact facial expression. It's hilarious. She even does it with, like, the, the, her friends at daycare, right? We know that, some of, that she copies the older kids at daycare because the older kids have clearly been taught to uh, call the, the workers at daycare, you know, Miss Tony, Miss Adele, whatever. And we realized she was copying those kids when she came home one day and called me Miss Dada. And um, <laughs> had to work on that one a little bit. And so, you know, usually this is, like, really cute, and sometimes it's even really helpful, right? Sometimes she'll try and, like, clean up a spill because she's imitating us. You know, we spill something, we go get a towel, clean it up. She spills something, she goes and grabs a towel and, and makes the mess worse, but she's trying, right? She likes to stand on a stool at the kitchen counter and cut up vegetables when we're cooking dinner. And, and of course, th- those are throwaway vegetables because you don't want to eat those after she touches them. But, um, you know, she does that. Now, she also imitates our bad habits, right? Because kids don't know how to dis- distinguish. So uh, she does things, you know, like I said, she gets angry the same way my wife gets angry. Um... <laughs> which is bad for me. Um, On one occasion, she blurted out a phrase that sounded a lot like oceans right in front of my mother. And um, I don't know why my wife uses language like that around the child. Again, she's not here, so I can say this stuff. Now, we think that we stop that kind of imitation as we get older, but we don't. We don't all of us, even as full-grown adults, will still imitate our parents. Right? Much of how I behave as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, I learned from watching my dad, and I imitate him in ways I'm not even paying attention to. One of the first things they actually teach us when they teach us how to do like premarital counseling is ask about the parents of both people in the couple, because how those marriages are gives you a lot of insight into how this marriage is going to go. Because we learn how to be a husband or a wife? We learn how to be a father or a mother by imitating our parents. It's not determinative; it doesn't mean that you'll be exactly the same person they were, but it shapes the way you will be a lot more than we realize. And there are other influences in there too, right? I I, I imitate other pastors who have been mentors to me or who have influenced me, but I also imitate. TV shows that I like, or movies, or books, or friends that I have, all sorts of other things, and we all do the same thing. And most of the time, we're not even aware we're doing it. It's it's a subconscious thing. But who we imitate reveals who is forming us and how they are forming us. And so, most of the time, that's a subconscious thing. But it doesn't have to be. We can choose to imitate Christ we can consciously work to imitate him more closely. And verse 32 actually tells us explicitly how to imitate Christ. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kindness. Kindness is how we imitate God. And we don't tend to talk about kindness as a specific Christian virtue very much because it doesn't sound as nice as love. It doesn't get people fired up to talk about being kind. Most of the time we, we... hear that phrase, be kind, and we see the, the little bumper sticker, right, on someone's car. It just says, be kind, and there's like a butterfly on the side, and we think, mm. It doesn't get me fired up, I'll tell you that much. And I'm the one preaching about it, so that tells you something. But kindness is how we imitate God. How would life be if, if we knew that God was out there making rude mar- remarks about us to someone? Or if God was talking about us behind our backs, or putting us down to someone else? Or what if we felt that we couldn't trust God enough to be honest? With us, What if he was constantly losing his temper with us? Now how must people feel about us if we are behaving in those ways? We cannot claim to be imitating God if that is our behavior. That's why we have to try to be like God. All of us recognize that God does none of those things. Because God is kind to us. That's why being like God means embodying kindness in everything that we do or say. And that's not a warm, fuzzy thing either. This is exceptionally difficult. Kindness is a difficult thing because it requires us to do hard things. It requires us to abandon our pride. It requires us to be willing to say hard things to people we love, to refrain from responding in kind when someone hurts us, to not give in to our impulse to see the negative in people and in events around us. This is not an easy calling but it is absolutely necessary if you want to be like Jesus you have to be kind even if it kills you because it killed him which brings us to the very end of the letter in chapter 6 verse 10 finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might means that following God, imitating God, living up to our calling, is difficult because it exposes us to the world. It makes us vulnerable. It scares us because it involves rejecting all the things that the world tells us make us strong and safe. And what's more, we will be opposed. And not just from other humans, although that should be expected too, but Paul is clear you'll run into non-human opposition. Spiritual warfare is not a topic we like to talk about. Uh, well, it sounds way too uh, fundamentalist or way too Pentecostal or way too Baptist. Pick your poison, right? Mm-hmm. It sounds like what those weirdos down the street, I'm not naming it, but just... You, But the fact is, the reason we don't like to talk about it is because in the end, at the end of the, spiritual warfare is itself spiritual warfare. Talking about it is a form of spiritual warfare. We don't like to talk about it because then we're involved in it. We prefer actually to ignore the forces of evil altogether, to pretend that they don't exist, to label those ideas as just nonsense or fundamentalist or whatever, and or we go the opposite direction and we develop an unhealthy obsession with the demonic or the occult. But these things are real. And they have to be taken seriously. Talk to anyone who has served in ministry long enough and you'll find that we all have stories about how in the lead up to a momentous occasion in ministry, it seems like there's just constant obstacles getting in the way. Right? Uh, the car won't start the day you're supposed to leave to go lead a retreat. The, the kids get sick the day before you're going to lead a prayer meeting. The computer froze, the power goes out, you lost all the work you did on your sermon. It happens far too often to be a coincidence. Even just last week, as I was preparing to write this sermon, and specifically this part of it, I almost couldn't do it. Things kept popping up, other things I had to tend to, and then when I finally had the time and I sat down to write it, it's like I could not focus. I could not motivate myself to get work done, and that doesn't happen to me. I mean, like, sure, if what I'm trying to do is mow the lawn, yeah, that'll happen. But with this kind of stuff, no, it's never an issue. I could not focus. I could not sit. It took me forever to do it. it's happened more than once. Every pastor I know, every church leader in any capacity I know can share similar stories where as they were getting ready to do something, often something they didn't even know was going to be all that important. Things kept popping up. Personal emergencies, family health scares, cars not starting, power going out, lack of motivation, all of it. Trying to keep them from being where God wants them to be. Over and over again. Most of us who are involved in church leadership will start to recognize when it's happening, and then we clue ourselves into, "Oh, something important's about to happen." We're, th- these things may seem small, right? The <laughs> an inability to sit down and focus may seem small, and to people who know me, it might just seem like par for the course. But <laughs> but it's real nonetheless. We're all engaged in a constant struggle that, too often, we don't even realize is happening. Now, we realize that from time to time, it's, it's just difficult to be a Christian, right? It's difficult to forgive someone. It's difficult to find time to pray and read our Bibles. It's difficult to resist temptation. But we tell ourselves that it's normal. These are just human failings, and uh, busy seasons of our lives or whatever, and we shrug it off and we go about our business. But these small struggles, they're part of a larger campaign. And they may seem insignificant, but that's only because we aren't seeing the bigger picture. We're allowing small victories to the enemy, but those small victories add up when they happen daily to each one of us. Part of our calling is to hold up and stand firm in the face of attack, which is why most of the things Paul describes here are defensive. Truth is the belt that holds everything else in place. The gospel is true, and it's not the case that the gospel is true because it works. It works because it's true. If the Christian message isn't true, then it's meaningless and everything we do is meaningless. Never give up on the sheer truth of the gospel because that is what holds everything together. Righteousness, the the fact that the one true God is the one true judge who intends to put the whole world right has justified us in Jesus Christ. The justice and goodness of God and the status that the Christians have of being in the right before him is the breastplate that protects you from frontal attack keeps you safe. The peace of God, peace between God and man, peace that God promises to bring on earth between humanity. This peace, and it's my favorite metaphor, right? It's like a good pair of shoes. Steadies you on the ground as the enemy tries all he can to knock you off your feet. Peace. Faith, which is both belief in Jesus the risen Lord and utter unshakable loyalty to him is the shield we raise to protect us from doubt despair, adversity, temptation, pride. The the helmet of salvation, knowing that in Christ we have already been rescued from sin and death, the ultimate enemies, protects us from the fear of any secondary lesser enemy we might face. And the word of God here is specifically the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, through which God accomplishes his saving work in people's hearts and lives. Paul assumes, doesn't feel the need to explain because he just assumes that the forces of evil which put Jesus on the cross are panic-stricken by his victory in the resurrection and by the thought that his message is now going all throughout the world, challenging their power and authority everywhere they go. These powers will do the best they can to oppose the gospel, to distract us, to discourage us, to lead us off course. And those attacks may be full-blown frontal assaults, but more often, it seems, they take the form of something more oblique, more subtle. Convincing us to invest time and energy into irrelevant side issues that prevent us from spreading the gospel, or seducing us into a false teaching, or they simply win us over with temptations of money, sex, and power. The age-old trio. We first have to recognize that these attacks are coming. And then we put on the full armor of God and we stand firm. Life is easier and simpler when we can just show up to church, call ourselves Christians, and try to live what we think is basically a good life. The problem is that is exactly what the enemy wants us to think. And it's not at all what being a Christian is ultimately about. If the gospel is true, it changes everything. Everything about us should be different in light of the gospel. If Jesus is Lord, we should be living as though that's actually true, as though we live in his kingdom. And he has modeled for us what that looks like. So the simplest thing we can do, the most surefire way to actually transform ourselves, to live every day as Christians, and to transform the world in the process is to imitate Jesus. And the starting point is kindness. Jesus was kind. But not, not in a soft way, in a, in a genuine way that involved a willingness to speak truth when the truth wasn't wanted. As well as demonstrating incredible compassion to those who needed it. He always balanced grace and truth. And really, that's what kindness is all about. It isn't kind to sugarcoat a harsh truth for someone whose life is spiraling out of control But it also isn't kind to rub salt in the wound or to be rude or offensive or cruel in sharing the truth. Kindness involves recognizing what a person needs from you in the moment and giving them that and nothing more. It's a difficult thing to get right. But we know that the Holy Spirit will guide us. We know that God will show us what to say, how to act, how to treat someone, as long as we are paying attention to his promptings. So my friends, I invite you this week to be imitators of God, to be imitators of Christ in all that you do. Show God's kindness to the world around you. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.